Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Hey, we made it. It's 2021. Let's celebrate. Let's meditate. We're still here. I know it was a 2020 was a long time. Let's not even talk about 2020. You're you're here right now. I'm so glad that you have decided to join me. This is going to be fun. We have one of my favorite authors, Sarah Wilson, uh, who's written the book I Quit Sugar, because we all know that Leo Flowers needs to quit sugar. Uh, diabetes runs rampant through my family, and my girlfriend Michelle is constantly hiding the treats from me. So. Uh, I definitely picked up Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar. She also wrote a book on anxiety called First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which I have also read uh, front to back. And then today we're going to discuss her latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, which is a soul's journey through the complexities of climate change, coronavirus, racial inequalities, and our disconnection from what matters. It's a way of getting us back to life. It's such a great book. I love all her work. If you're struggling with work, with finding meaning, with setting boundaries uh, or conflict resolution, whether it's in the family or, or with your boss, go to thrivewithleo.com and we can work on ways for you to communicate more effectively, find purpose, get you out of bed in the morning. We all want a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Um, or if you're looking for that special someone, go to thrivewithleo.com and let's get to tomorrow together. With that said, let's jump into the episode. Here is Sarah Wilson. Uh, I'm excited to have you on, Sarah Wilson. I, I've, I've read, uh, you know, first we make the beast beautiful. And I'm yeah. excited about your, your new book. I need to read I Quit Sugar apparently, because I just got my blood results back today and I'm like pre-diabetic. So, uh, right. Uh, I can help with that. <laughs> I'll get a couple of coffees off to you as soon as possible. Oh, seriously. I, I I'm going to devour that. Uh, please. Um, your, your new book, this one wild and precious life, it, it's addressing, uh, a, a pandemic, an epidemic that no one else is, is really talking about. And uh, that's the state of, of loneliness. Please tell me about this book and, and what uh, motivated you to write it. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, a few years back, I published um, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which is about my journey, uh, an inwards journey, I suppose, with anxiety and quite specifically bipolar um, disorder. And that came out in, in the States. For those of you who are tuning in, I am clearly Australian, um, but I spent a lot of time in the States and um, the book did well over there. It became a New York Times bestseller and I think it resonated because it was about going inwards and actually looking at anxiety through a philosophical, spiritual and scientific lens that kind of went beyond the pharmaceutical medical model didn't discount the medical model but actually tried to go a bit further. So when I you know, did the publicity trail, I came over to the States and went around the world um, talking about the book, but what I started to notice, 
and I'm sure everybody listening has noticed the same thing, the entire planet has become rather anxious. And I, I feel that it's a collective anxiety now. So rather than it being an inward thing, I think it's more of an outward thing. And I, I started to realise within myself that I needed to take the journey outwards into the world. You know, the state of the planet, um, the state of politics, the state of young people um, with, you know, these young people in the States dying of what we call diseases of despair, so opioid use and alcohol and suicide. I mean, this was really clear definitive signs that things were not right. So I felt that the discussion I'd had in First We Make the Beast Beautiful needed to be extended. Um, And so I went on a three-year journey around the world to explore ways um, to address what I kind of call a loneliness from the outset. And I think it's a slightly misguided term, Leo, because I think um, we've sort of pointed our finger at loneliness because we kind of get loneliness. We can define it and we can, I think there's a a minister for loneliness in the UK and um, you have over in the States, you have a lot of dialogue around loneliness, you know. But when you dig down deeper, the loneliness is more, it's not really about like lack of contact between other people. It's not like we're short of, you know, humans in our life. Um, We sort of, you know, are inundated, you know, with social connections one way or another. What we're lonely from is meaningful connection, both with uh, other people, ourselves, and also with the essence of life, if you know what I mean, with the meaning of life. And that's what I thought really needed to be explored to understand the climate crisis, political fragmentation, which we're in the middle of at the moment, um, and a few other things. So that's that's why I set out to write the book. I felt it was really important. You know, and I'm glad you you wrote that. And one of the things you, you talk about is how, you know, being out in nature can really help us to feel connected. And it does. It's There's something about hiking and being in a wilderness that uh, makes me, even though I'm by myself, I feel a hundred percent more connected than when I'm in a room with a hundred people. Can you speak to that and explain that? It's kind of like a sense of belonging, isn't it? And I actually call it, I love the word attunement. We're attuned. We're attuned with, I guess, the, the, the vibe of life, you know. We don't feel like we're separate when we're in nature. And it's really interesting. Um, when I was writing First We Make the Beast Beautiful, um, you know, I did talk about um, it in the book that one of my sort of salves for modulating my anxiety was to hike and just to walk. And I sort of touched on some of the benefits. But then for this book, I naturally found myself trying to deal with the overwhelm of the climate science Um, and with everything that was happening in the world um, by getting out into nature and hiking. So every time I got to a stuck bit in my book, I'd just sort of, um, you know, take off into the bushland wherever I was. And sometimes it was in Australia, it was in the States. So I I hiked Sierra Nevada out of Mammoth, you know, did this incredible part of the John Muir walk out there. I hiked out at Joshua Tree, Um, you know, I hiked in Hawaii, I hiked in Jordan, wherever I found myself, I'd go on these hikes to kind of thrash out my thoughts. And anyway, as it turns out, I got to a really stuck place, Um, literally two months before deadline, I was like, 
oh my God, I don't think I've got a path for hope. And as you know, the subtitle is, you know, promises um, a hopeful path forward in this kind of fragmented world. Um, And what I realised is it was actually really quite simple. It was about getting out and hiking. And so I looked into the the research and there's something like 40,000 studies that have now been done, many of them recently, into why walking, but more specifically walking in nature, can be great for um, sort of modulating our anxiety. And so there's a, there's a couple that I think um, readers here in Australia have really resonated with. And, of course, you know, the States, you're yet to have the book drop. It's going to drop any, well, I think it's by the time we go to air, it will have dropped in the States. But um, so, so when you uh, walk, what they've found is it actually goes at the pace of discerning thought. And I really think that a big part of our disconnect in the world is that we don't have an ability to kind of regroup, formulate our considered thinking around these complex issues that we're being bombarded with. Like so many people talk to me about the fact, look, I just can't even, I can't even digest it all. So walking allows us to do this. And of course, if you look at all the great thinkers, philosophers, scientists, artists throughout history, They walked to kind of get their head clear. So Nietzsche, Winston Churchill, um, Abraham Lincoln, they walked in nature to get their thoughts very clear on a bunch of things. Um, Then I also really like the study um, around the fact that our, and this kind of speaks to a little bit of that attunement that you referred to earlier. So in our eyes, our irises are made up of fractals, which are wonderful patterns that occur in nature, repeated patterns. So if you think of tidal pools and if you think of the rings of trees and shell designs and flower petals, they work to these beautiful repeated patterns. And our eyes are the same. And when we walk in nature and we see these other natural fractals, there's this attunement, there's this resonance, there's this recognition and we get this sense of feeling like we belong. And, well, I could rally off a whole bunch more but, of course, they are outlined in the book. And so there's scientific reasons as to why walking is a wonderful salve for bringing us back to this one wild and precious life. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was the thinking behind using the hiking bit as the trajectory. So I explore all these really complex kind of gnarly and and quite scary ideas at times, kind of on tracks around the world. I tried to kind of make it a bit sexy, Leo, you know, <laughs> by, by, by making it a bit travel log-ish. Well, I, 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 you definitely tell some great stories. And, and I was actually writing down uh, a few of the trails that you mentioned in the book out and because you, you painted such a vivid picture of of how beautiful they were. And I was like, I, I have to, uh, uh, you know, be a part of this and, <laughs> and experience this. Um, and, and, and for the listeners, I don't want the listeners to think, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a few hundred pages about just walking. You know, one of the things I love that you mentioned in the book is getting discordant. And, um, and it's a word that I hadn't heard before, but as you explained it, I, it resonated immediately. Can you, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, I sort of talk about the idea. I mean, look, I think a lot of where we're at and our dissatisfaction and the reason why our spirits are really struggling today is because uh, we are discordant. We're, we're, we're feeling like um, we're, well, we're feeling discordant, but we're feeling discordant because we're sort of in this safety kind of cocoon. Um, so much of technology, just as one example, is geared towards um, saving us from the feeling of discomfort 
right? And look, every spiritual and philosophical tradition throughout the ages has talked about the value of sitting in pain, sitting in discomfort, you know, resilience training, all of that kind of thing. And yet our culture for the last 20 years or so has been geared towards avoiding all of that. And as a result, we've lost a certain vibrancy. And what I talk about in the book, and I sort of draw on a bunch of different thinkers' ideas to sort of extrapolate this, is that um, what we need to actually practice to be able to come together, to reconnect once again, but also to cope with what's ahead, because I think everyone agrees we've got a very uncertain world at the moment, and it's only going to get more uncertain um, as, as things as things go forward. So what I talk about is going to your edge. And by edge, I mean going to a space where you are deliberately uncomfortable or at least inviting or allowing that discomfort to kind of sit with you or you sit in that discomfort. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of use the example of a tree just to go back to nature. You know, I think we've been sitting really close to the trunk you know, we've been huddled around the trunk and kind of getting on with our spending and our consuming and our sort of comfortable lives where we sit on the couch and we watch Netflix and we order in Uber Eats and uh, we cast our opinions on social media and we, we're not really out there in the world. Um, so we're sitting nice and close to the trunk and it's safe and it's a comfortable place to be. But really where life happens, it's on the outer limbs of the tree. So it's really out there that you get to smell the fresh air. You get to feel the vibrancy of life. And, yeah, it can get scary. You get blown around a bit. But in that blowing around, you're fending and you're flexing with life. And that's where life truly happens. And it's where creativity happens. It's where um, resilience can be built. It's where children can um, develop into their most um, sort of capable humans. And, when you sit down the trunk, Leo, I kind of see it as almost like we stay in this adolescent state. Being adult is going out there into the discordance, the edginess of life. And I feel that that life is calling us out to the edge. It's like, guys, enough with the comfort, enough with the hashtag self-care and the cocooning and avoidance. Um, life, our souls are calling us to an appointment with life and that requires actively going out to our edge. So not an appointment with a masseuse? That's not that's not the edge right there. Say that again. I, I said not not an appointment with the masseuse with a masseuse. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're a particularly skilled masseuse at kind of taking you to a pain threshold that you find beneficial to your development into adulthood. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, look, that, that said, um, a certain amount of physical discord and discomfort is actually a great way to practice going to your edge. And for me, hiking and in sort of unfamiliar terrain and for other people just simply going on your first hike, you know, strapping on some shoes, going. I mean, nature is the perfect place to practice um, kind of trying out the edge and a bit of discordance, you know. But I actually refer to the word discordance specifically when I was writing the book and quite often what I would have to do, I'd get into this stuck place once again because the information was so uncomfortable. And what I would do is go and sort of almost do the opposite, a bit George Costanza style, you know, where, all right, this is not working, so I'm going to go and do the opposite over here. And so 
I went on a Friday night when my friends were all settling down with their families for the evening or, you know, my single friends were out, you know, going out for drinks and so on. I would go to a bookshop shop cafe and sit on my own and order a glass of wine at precisely the wrong time for doing that kind of thing. It's sort of right when everybody's kind of getting excited and ready for the evening. And I would, you know, I'd do my best writing in those moments because it, the wrongness enabled it, if that makes sense. It was like I was able to focus and get clear because the discordance, the the contrast, the edginess enabled it. That makes sense. When I was in college, I would do the same thing. I would go to a bar on a Friday or Saturday night and study. And yeah, I found yeah. that I needed the the background noise to help me focus. Sometimes I need absolute quiet. And mm-hmm. then I, there are times where I need a ruckus. I need um, like chaos around me. And then, then that's need, where yeah, I to can rise focus. to yep. it. Yeah, to rise to it. And I actually flesh out a study that um, talks to that exact phenomenon in the book um, that shows that um, children actually can concentrate way better when there's an annoying background noise. There you go, you know, and because it actually gets us to rise rather than sit close and all comfortable and a bit kind of foggy-headed close to the trunk, you know, a little bit of discordance will get us to rise um, and we become a lot more alert and online, so to speak. And what I love also about the, the idea of like not just, you know, s- you know, sitting close to the trunk and getting out there on the limbs is, you know, I've studied yoga and I didn't realize that, you know, there's uh, three parts to yoga. There's uh, you know, the physical, which is, you know, which are the exercises, however they call it. And then there's meditation. But then there's a third part, which is service. And a lot of people yes. who claim to be uh, uh, into yoga and, you know, showing off all, all their different, uh, you know, their mobility, uh, they rarely talk about acts of service. That is the third yeah. tenet of it. And, and I know in the book, you talk about how people are spiritually light. And, and that's what I think about those people who dismiss the part of where you're supposed to go out and, and be of service to others. Yeah. Um, and it extends beyond yoga. It extends to a lot of the spiritual stuff that we talk about, the sort of contemporary spiritual um, traditions that are floating around. You know, as I say, I, I call it kind of spiritualism light or diet spiritualism. And it's where we cherry pick the kind of stuff we want you know the nice indulged mantras and the you know um sort of the 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 lovely kind of candles and and that kind of thing and then we conveniently ignore as you say that the service aspect and every spiritual religious whatever tradition throughout history has had the two and um we're meant to do both to be able to glean the full results and you know i sort of say that um you know and and how it's playing out at the moment, and and it was leading up um, to sort of the political situation we now find ourselves in, there was a lot of political apathy. Um, And I was in the States writing this part of the book, actually. I was hiking in um, Joshua Tree and I was observing a lot of people. I um, I was actually there when Donald Trump declared that he was running for president. And at the time, it, it didn't really kind of, in amongst sort of all the LA green smoothie crew, it didn't really elicit much of a reaction. And a lot of people said to me, oh, I'm not into politics. Like, I'm just into good vibes, you know. And I sort of have thought about it a fair bit. And, um, 
there's a number of great sort of commentators who talk about this as well. I feel that, like, it's sort of non-negotiable. You can't be spiritual and not political. I mean, Jesus was political. Gandhi was political. The spiritual is always political. And what we've done is we've cherry-picked out the hard bits and we've just kept the nice, you know, rainbows and unicorns bits. And that is actually doing us a huge disservice because, as you say, like, the whole point of this and a bunch of other what I call moral guardrails are geared at making sure our sort of individualism doesn't run rampant. And in days gone by, and Leo, I suspect that you're probably old enough to remember such times. (laughs) Um, I certainly am. But there used to be various provisions in place. You know, there was a Sabbath. You know, whether you're religious or not, Sundays were sort of left as days of rest, spend with family and not be bludgeoned with emails and and sort of, you know, work calls. That's all gone, right? Um, We had a bunch of kind of, yeah, what are called moral guardrails, and I know that um, there's a New York Times commentator who who uses this phrase quite a lot. He's an economist. Um, And they would just ensure that our worst individualistic tendencies didn't end up destroying our communities, our family networks, our sense of collective belonging. And unfortunately, over the last 20 years, so much of our system has got rid of those moral guardrails and including um, getting rid of that notion of service within spirituality. And it was the service element that kind of kept us on the straight and narrow and ensured that we stayed kind and generous and all the things that we we, we really do feel is at the heart of our humanity. And when we don't have those elements... We feel disconnected and morally lonely. It's so true. When you when we look at the three uh, stage model of suicidality, uh, the second stage is: uh, Are you connected to people or purpose? And and that goes yeah. back to to you know b- feeling like you're of service. Uh, in the book, you talk about feeling necessary. Like we we need yes. to feel when we look at um. I think, is it the Amish? I think that, you know, if somebody wants a house, everybody chips in to build the house. You know, the women are mm-hmm. serving drinks, the men are with the tools, but it's a community effort. And we don't have a lot of those opportunities within a lot of our communities. That's right. We've almost been denied them because those opportunities that would provide the forum for it, you know, even having a Sabbath to kind of rest and talk meaningfully with the neighbour and finding out that they need a bit of a help with the paving in the backyard or something like that. We actually don't have those structures in place. And um, and it's it's bringing about a great deal of, of sadness, I think. Um, it's denying us our humanity. And it, that's something that I think really does have to be addressed. We've got to start putting back in place those moral guardrails. And it sort of runs counter to what the dialogue is of 2020, right, which is all about no freedom of the individual, um, eradication of government intervention um, or any kind of intervention and certainly not, you know, um, having some spiritual or religious tradition telling me I should go and do this or that. I need to just sit with the good vibes, you know. That's been our language and it's a, it's a hard thing to shift around to, I guess, reminding ourselves of that, you know, we are at our happiest when we are helping out other people. Um, every study shows that um, we actually need um, these 
these institutions in place to give us that opportunity again. Absolutely. And, and I think part of it is so many people are uh, afraid to engage for, for, for various reasons, whether uh, they feel like there might be a political or familial uh, repercussion. But in a book, you talk about how to turn fear into action and, and how, to, mm-hmm. how to turn into your fears. Can you speak to that for people out there who want to take action, who, who are sad and despondent? How, how do they turn that into action? Yeah, and even, well, I think the first thing is identifying that the overwhelm that we're feeling, um, you know, is perfectly understandable and that our reaction to the overwhelm, so the reaction to the fear and the anger and all those other very human emotions um, results in overwhelm. So we go into a numbness. We go into this, I just can't even, you know, kind of space. And so we do flock to the spiritual traditions that allow us to kind of cocoon and chill out, you know, on a yoga mat somewhere. Um, so we need to understand that that is actually what happens. And at a sort of an evolutionary level, I use the example of um, the tiger and, and the, uh, the tiger and the deer. So a deer will, um, you know, be pursued by a tiger and it will revert to the flight or fight mechanism. And in the case of the deer, it tries to, to do the flight thing. It tries to outrun the tiger. However, eventually the tiger will catch up on the deer and the deer could potentially, you know, um, be, be, be running its way into its own death. So what it does is it reverts to the third mechanism that we have in our evolutionary makeup, which is to freeze. So there's the flight, fight and freeze mechanism. And when we have so much fear going on, what we will do is like a deer that will shut down and play dead. So a deer being chased by a tiger will actually collapse in a heap and for all intents and purposes, it appears dead. Heart rate stops, it stops breathing and the tiger gets fooled into going, this this thing's dead, I can take it a bit easy, I'll go and get the cubs, I'll bring them back for a nice languid lunch. And in that sort of pause, the deer has the best chance of survival because what it will do is when it sees a bit of a clearing, it will jerk back into action out of its frozen state and bolt for its life and hopefully live on. We do the same thing when we face trauma. So often assault or sexual assault victims will often go into what, you know, a freeze state where they shut down completely. Um, And I think that that's what we're doing at the moment with everything that's going on in the world. We're shutting down. We're going numb. We don't even know what to do. And that then causes another layer of collective anxiety, right? Because nobody, we're we're watching what's happening to the planet and we feel like, oh, my God, I'm not even doing anything. I'm actually engaged in this. So first of all, it's important to recognise it's an evolutionary response. Then what we need to do is work with that evolutionary response, that biology, and fight it. Now, like the deer, the deer actually jerks back to life again. We need to do the same thing. We need to jerk back to life, and one of the best ways to do that is to get physical. So in ancient times, we would freeze like a deer, and then we would jerk back to life and run for our lives, you know, outrun the tiger or whatever to safety. Um, 
we don't do that anymore. We end up staying in our houses, watching Netflix and ordering in Uber Eats. The best thing you can do is to actually get out there and do exercise. And even if you're somewhere in the world where COVID is a problem and you need to stay indoors, there's ways to do it. Dance, turn on loud music, dance it off. Um, And countless studies show that that is an incredible way to shake off that frozen state of being and then you can actually get activists. The other thing to do is go straight to being activist get involved in people who are out there um, involved in peaceful protest and peaceful engagement. And studies, once again, show that just being engaged, feeling like you're doing even a small bit can alleviate a lot of the guilt and anxiety and then you're more likely to to do even more. And what I say, Leo, is you probably recall this in the book, action begets action. And there's this wonderful three and a half percent figure of hope. So an academic a couple of years ago did a study that looked at every peaceful protest from 1900 to 2014. And what she found was that where any kind of organisation or community or town or country got together three and a half percent of the population involved, engaged, activated in peaceful protest, the change that they were seeking would happen bam, it would just happen. So it's not a huge amount, right? And what happens, of course, is you get 3.5% and then action begets action and people start to, a momentum builds and then governments change laws, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think that's a really good thing to remind people of. You know, we don't need a huge number of people to be involved. We need 3.5% and then this wonderful sort of momentum happens and the, the change can become exponential. So we need a couple of those reminders, you know, so that we can get out of our anger, out of our guilt, out of our overwhelm and start to, you know, as I say repeatedly in my book, um, save this one wild and precious life that we've been given. Yeah, and, and I think because America, especially America, has so, been so focused on individual individuation, uh, you know, mm. just doing things yourself and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, I think a lot of people think, they have to do things by themselves. And, and I got myself into this. I got to get myself out. And, and I think that prevents a lot of people from asking for help, for, for seeking out allies, for, for, for aligning ourselves uh, with, with people who, um, who may even be adversaries. In the book, you talk about um, how to ask your adversary for help, which I thought was a, a beautiful story about uh, Benjamin Franklin, if you care to uh, elaborate. Yeah, so it's a, I love this example. And I think a lot of people might find it useful at the moment. So Benjamin Franklin, um, he had an adversary in Parliament who was just always giving him a hard time, bullying him, just pushing up against anything that um, Franklin was putting forward. And he, he experimented with this idea of reaching out to this adversary, another sort of member of of, of the government and um, asked to borrow one of these rare books. So this guy was a collector of rare books and was very proud of it and said, look, you know, I understand you've got this copy of this particular book. Could I borrow it? And um, his adversary, you know, gladly shared it because he loves his book collection. And what Franklin found is that from that point forward, this adversary was far more cooperative and, in fact, supported a lot of Franklin's work going forward. And the theory behind that is there's a cognitive dissonance at play. You can't actively go and give something to someone or help somebody and still see them as an enemy. 
And so something's got to shift and so your perception of them as an enemy, as an adversary, has to change. And so I find that a really wonderful thing. And you know what that speaks to? It's sort of, I just thought of it now, like it speaks to the fact that we are a species that loves being of service. When we're being of service, we find it very hard to, to hate people, you know. <laughs> you know, so if somebody asks, you know, if, if life calls me to come and, and help out, whether it's a climate protest or it's a, a person in need, when I'm in that act of helping out, it's really hard to actually hate on the person that you're helping out. You know, it's, it's a cognitive um, sort of situation that we, we just don't go to. So, yeah, there's a couple of things like that that I really explore in the book, which are simple little techniques. And when you think about it, there's cultures that have been using these techniques just sort of naturally for, for many years. We have just unlearned them and we need to learn them and practice them again. It's so true when we're of service. It's so hard to hate. I, I just think about, you know, I played high school and college football and I would get into fights with my teammates, but you don't stay angry forever. You're not holding on to that because uh, there's still a, a war to be fought, a battle uh, to be won. And, you know, you, you get over those things uh, very quickly and, and you yes. move on and, and you forgive quickly uh, because you're thinking about the bigger picture. It's not just about exactly. you or me. That's what it comes down about to. Us. Yes. And, and in 2020 and going forward, like the bigger picture is this planet and it's the broader concept of our life, this one wild and precious life. And I just want to pick up on something you said before, this idea of being necessary and you use the wartime analogy and I use that throughout the book quite a lot too because I found it quite a helpful parallel to draw quite often. Um, and the idea of being necessary is really interesting. It sort of speaks to what we were just talking about. Um, there's been a number of studies and they're quite familiar now to a number of people. But, um, and, and the phrase that somebody, I think is Sebastian Junger, who um, some of the listeners might be familiar with, he's done a few of the podcasts, you know, around the place. He wrote a book called Tribes and he was a war correspondent and what he found was that, and this is his line, I believe, humans can deal with any kind of adversity and hardship. What we can't deal with is not being necessary. And he focused that line on the fact that um, people coming back from the war, PTS, most PTSD was as a result of the homecoming. So the contrast from being out there at war, feeling necessary, fighting for your country and principles of democracy and so on, and coming home to a place where all of that's sort of rising to the bigger picture was absent. And that was something that he discusses really well. So the notion of being necessary is, is just so important to our human fibre, you know, and we've lost discussion around that. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, you talked about uh, coming back from the war, which, uh, I, which leads me into the idea of this post-traumatic growth. There's so much talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but in the book, you talk about post-traumatic growth. And I think it's important to highlight because uh, a lot of people are afraid to step into the unknown. They're afraid of, of what they might, what might happen. They're thinking just about the injuries and the, and the loss and, and the consequences but there's, there's a growth to be had from going to war, from going to battle, from being an activist, 
Right. And from just sitting in discomfort, right, and not avoiding it. So, yeah, no, um, the studies, um, the studies that um, have referred to the fact that we hear a lot about PTSD, but what they actually found when they dug deeper is that um, there are far more people that come back from war um, and from, you know, difficult battlegrounds um, with what you just, you know, just pointed out, post-traumatic growth. And um, we don't talk about that. We, we hear about the trauma and we get it. But um, these, the far greater number of people um, come back and have a growth experience. So not even a neutral experience, i.e., you know, they're kind of cool and get on with the rest of their life. They have a growth experience, an emotional or spiritual growth experience. And, you know, I mean, what a wonderful thing to focus on. What a wonderful thing to start to discuss and encourage in young people in particular that going through tough times can lead to a great opportunity to grow and to get richer and to get happier. When I say richer, I mean emotionally richer, of course. So um, that's, again, something that we we don't talk about and we don't foster and we don't encourage and we really need to. We really need to because these old school principles, we need to revert back to them um, to be able to cope better because the lack of resilience amongst young people is, in particular, is unfathomable. Young people are suffering because they are a generation that have grown up with this technology and the avoidance of this, this traumatic growth you know, this necessary growth um, in their lives. And we're seeing it everywhere, aren't we? I mean, you know, the disenfranchisement of young men who just feel like they haven't, they don't feel necessary. And so they revert to gaming, to extremism and to violence, you know. Um, and we, we see, we're seeing it playing out in all kinds of ways. Addiction, um, succumbing to addiction because people give up. Um, and also the giving up the, of the fight, and it is a fight, but it's a noble fight and it's a rewarding and wonderful fight to save this one wild and precious life, to, to fight for the planet. Um, and really what we're fighting for, Leo, if we're going to be really honest, we're fighting for humanity because the planet will live on. Sure, it'll look a bit different if we continue on the current trajectory. There'll be animals that, you know, become extinct and um, the forests and the landscape will look different. But um, the, the really frightening thing that we often avoid um, is that humanity um, is, is going to suffer the most. It's not about the planet. It's about us. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, tying it all back into, into your book is, you know, social media, uh, TV, they've all convinced us that to feel connected, we need to purchase something. We need something outside of ourselves to feel that. And it's led to this overconsumption, which, you know, you just can't keep up. The dopamine wears off no. at, at some point. Right. Um, yeah. My, my question for you is, you know, with the holidays coming up, Christmas is around the corner. And so we, we got consumption season, you know, uh, biting at our heels. Uh, what's a, another way we could spend Christmas that doesn't involve the, you know, overconsumption of, of, of items for each other, though, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I sort of have grown up with, well, with minimalist principles um, sort of, you know, that seep into my bones. I grew up in a subsistence living farm um, out in the mountains and we had 
very little access to all of that consumption. And I've lived this way. I mean, Leo, I've been a minimalist while being the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Australia. Um, so that's, you know, uh, reasonably, um, I guess it gives me some some credentials in speaking about the wonderfulness of, of minimalism if I could fight it while working for Cosmopolitan. Um, but I would say that for at Christmas time, this is what my family does. We're a large extended family and um, we have for many years now, we don't buy presents, we, we go and book a house um, down by the ocean, a big rambling house that can fit 20 to 25 people and we just decamp there for a week and that's our present to each other is to actually spend time, not money. And the time is just wonderful. Um, we sort of almost have to see time as something that needs to be bought or to be sacrificed. You know, we need to sacrifice things to have that time. And um, it's a way of putting up a moral guardrail, isn't it? You go and book a house that actually enforces everybody to turn up, arrive and to be very present and to be, to be just in amongst each other's company and things unfurl, our humanity unfurls. So, so that's one technique I would suggest. There's a couple of other things that, you know, it's a time of, and especially with, you know, off the back of Thanksgiving, it's a time of gratitude and a whole range of things. It's a time of restocking and, and Christmas 2020 is going to be a time to take stock for sure. And there's a couple of really gentle things in the book techniques that I share because, as you say, it's not just about going hiking as a fix. Um, one of them is this wonderful version of how are you. Um, in per the Persian sort of dialect, um, it's it's it translates roughly to how is your heart in this breath? And I sort of suggest that when you use that as a greeting, as a way of greeting family and friends at Christmas time, it actually slows us all down and gets us very present into actually really asking after another's well-being. And then you also have to answer it with quite a lot of considered thinking um, or discerning emotional thought. And this is the stuff we're craving, right? Those, those pauses, those pauses to actually really consider where another person's at or even con consider where we're at. So that's one. And then I've got a whole chapter, as you probably know, on this Greek concept of philotomos. And it roughly translates to an idea of radical kind of givingness to strangers. So it's something that infiltrates the Greek, um, you know, the Greeks like families today over there practice philotomos. They're taught it as a kid. Um, it's something that you just do. And it's this kind of honour. It's called, It actually translates to the love of honour or the honour of love. And it's this idea of absolutely getting a kick out of giving generously to others and in particular a stranger. And anyone who's travelled to Greece may have experienced this. I experience it every time I go, like at every corner, um, Greeks wanting to help me with something, offer their help. And, yeah, an exploration of this notion of philotomos I think is a beautiful thing to explore at this Christmas. I love that. Yeah, I did read that and uh, it makes me want to go to Greece, you know, just to, <laughs> yes. to experience that, uh, that, that welcoming. It's, it's interesting how you can travel to some places and you just feel immediately welcome. And then, you know, I'm from Chicago. And I go there and I, every time I go back, I feel like I'm starting all over again. Like I'm like in terms of like connecting and, and, uh, and feeling present, but then there are just some places where you go and you feel like I have like, like you've been there before or like this yeah. is where you should be. 
Well, it comes back to that word, attunement, you know, the belonging, the connectedness. And we can learn a lot from other cultures' heritage where, you know, they're kind of guardrails for ensuring that we reach out to each other. Um, All the, you know, Leo, I say this at the end of the book, all the solutions exist. They all exist out there. And and I refer specifically to the climate crisis and um, they all exist out there. All we've got to do is to apply them. And it's not like they're onerous things to apply. They're wonderful things to apply. We've got to do them all at once. We've got to fire up. We've got to go out to our edge. We've got to get discordant. We've got to get wild and a little bit radical and a bit deviant and do these things in a way that's joyous. We've got to find our joy. And, and our attunement. Um, I speak also of group soul. We're going to do this as a group soul experience and that's what's going to, the momentum's going to have to gather. And you're from Chicago, you, you'd be a, a, a sporting fan, I imagine, of some sort because, you know, I know that so many different um, great teams you know, emanate from Chicago in different sports. But how many sporting games have finished, like the big sporting games that go in, down in history where the losing side are down a couple of points and there's 30 seconds left on the clock and something wild will happen. I call it the kamikaze effect. The losing team will do something crazy. They throw the usual rules out the window and they throw everything. They rise, they get uncomfortable, they go crazy and they they get wild basically and they will come in with the the home run or the, the, the final try that sees them win and It happens so often, doesn't it? These incredible games that go down in history are won often by one one point in the final couple of seconds. And that's kind of how I see where we're at at the moment. You know, we're in the final seconds of the game, we're the losing side and we have an opportunity to get a bit kamikaze and and to go wild and to actually, actually say things, you know, and... We love this kind of stuff. We love these moments as humans. It's it's part of our makeup. I, I absolutely love that because I know so many people right now who are in such despair. They've lost their job or going through a divorce, and uh, and they feel like they're down by one point with you know two seconds left, and there's no way they they can they can you know score a victory or or bounce back. And like you said, it's something wild happens, some X factor, some unknown. Some yeah. intangible happens, yeah. uh, and and that's and it, it. And we've seen it throughout sports and life and history, and uh, so it can happen again. Yeah, yeah. Um, incredible scientific discoveries—they happen in those last kind of exciting moments, and um, that's the opportunity we face. Far from being feeling hopeless, um, we we really do need to feel a wonderful form of hope. And in the process of of rising to what's being put in front of us at the moment, which is damn hard for everyone, and as you say, the repercussions of that are divorces, people losing jobs, incredible uncertainty, children who can't go to school because they are so anxious, you know. All of this is real, real stuff. And we're all in this pain together around the globe. Um, But rather than give up, this is our actual moment. This is our moment to rise. And um, I actually I actually get very enlivened by it, um, you know, this kind of form of radical hope. I love that, radical hope. Sarah Wilson, is there anything that we haven't discussed from the book 
that you love <laughs> to share. There's, there's so many things I'd love to ask you about, but I don't want to give, uh, you know, uh, some of the storylines away. Uh, you, you know, you talk about your, your pregnancy and, and life, and, mm-hmm. and it was just really powerful stories. Uh, is, there, is there anything that, that you want to share that you feel like would be of value to the listeners? Look, I, I think really the note that I want to finish, in on, finish on is that I think there is an incredible opportunity for us here. I think in the process of attending to this challenge, we are actually going to become sort of the humans that we're craving to become. I think a lot of our itchiness that we feel, our cringiness, our guilt, our overwhelm stems from the fact that we're not being the humans. We're not being the big humans that we know ourselves to be. And so I actually feel that there's almost this double whammy effect that's going to come from this massive group soul arising. You know, it's happening already. I can feel it. Um, I would also just say that, um, you know, there's, there's also huge compassion to be had. And when we switch from anger to compassion, um, you know, I think wonderful things can happen. And I think it's best summed up by um, a poem or part of a poem by Rumi, the Sufi poet. Um, and really there's a, there's a Rumi poem for just about every occasion, isn't there? I think, you know, probably half a dozen people on your podcast have quoted Rumi, no doubt. Um, but my favourite is out beyond, beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And it's in that field we want to be, and I think that's our ultimate goal. Let's, let's join each other in that field. And that's essentially what my book's about. It's techniques, it's mindsets, it's ruminations that I feel could get us all into that field, no matter who we vote for, no matter what our thoughts are on the climate science. Um, that's where we want to be as humans. I love that. And then last question, and I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the mm-hmm. precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Sarah Wilson? Oh, gosh. That, God, that, that, that's a really beautiful, beautiful question. I would say, I would say, have you, have you been wild yet? Have you tried wild? Once you try wild, and, and I say this, Leo, and I think you know this about me, having read First We Make the Beast Beautiful, I've, I myself has, have faced that question on four occasions in my life. And, um, and one of them was in the writing of this book. And what I have done is I have actually, what saved me each time is I have sat there and I've gone, well, if I'm willing to give everything up, what if... I gave everything up, but I chose to live. And then I, I, I chose to live with just the clothes on my back and I did it my way because, you know what, there's no rules now. If I'm willing to give everything up, there are no rules now. And so that's something I committed to in my mid-30s. I'm now in my, my late 40s and um, I committed to that and I've stuck to it and I literally lived with the clothes on my back. I, I wrote this book um, living out of, of one backpack, um, one carry-on bag around the world for three years. And, in fact, I lived this way for 10 years. And um, that's what I would say is I would say firstly consider the wild idea that, all right, if you're willing to give it all up, 
what if instead you gave it all up but still chose to live and you chose to live like you really, really meant it in your own way because there's always that option. I love it. Please plug all your things. Where can people find the book, learn more about you, (laughs) website, all the good stuff? All right. So this One Wild and Precious Life will hit all the bookstores. It's on. It's available for pre-sale already, of course, um, with discounts, I think, on most, uh, most um, outlets, this One Wild and Precious Life. You can also just go straight to sarahwilson.com and I'm very, very active on Instagram um, with a bunch of these ideas and sharing different thoughts and poems and philosophies. So if you want a little bit more, head to sarahwilson.com and then everything from there you'll find. And thank you so much, Sarah Wilson. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. This, uh, it's talk to someone. I don't care who you talk to. Talk to your friend, talk to an enemy, talk to an adversary, call call a tech support. But uh, your story needs to be heard. Uh, Get this book, This One Wild and Precious Life by Sarah Wilson. And let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with everything and and, uh, happy holidays.